is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Mike Hansen. Originally from Chicago and spending over 25 years in the Los Angeles music scene, Mike had the opportunity to work with many great artists such as the band Hurricane, Steve Vai, George Lynch, Doug Pinnock of King's X fame, the Pointer Sisters, Albert Lee, the band Tribe After Tribe, and many others. He's been spending this last year living in Chicago, taking care of his parents and tending to his father's needs, who is suffering from cancer. His father was an important figure in Mike's musical development, as his father was a professional guitar player and exposed Mike to many great musicians and opportunities throughout his life. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. If Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. A big shout-out goes to James Beyer and Beyer Snare Drums. He has been a sponsor of this podcast over recent months. And you will hear in this episode a snare drum of the week. And you will also hear a track. Both of these feature Nashville drummer Mark Beckett. In addition, James is how Mike and I connected to do this podcast. So I really appreciate that, James. So in this episode, uh, Mike talks about recording from home in Chicago and producing the new Hurricane record. And we talk about cross-blending, and uh, this is real exciting to me because I hadn't heard this before. I understood what cross-blending was after the fact and using samples and mixing that with real tracks. But we talk about using a uh, Roland electronic triggering system and triggering essentially in real time. And that, that, that really got me excited and got me thinking. And I know that a lot of us are at home recording more uh, maybe for the first time or in the beginning stages. So this may open a Pandora's box to those possibilities, but uh, it was uh, one of the many things that Mike and I get a chance to uh, get into on this episode. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Hansen. Well, I was 35 years in L.A., and um, you know, I moved back here to take care of my mom and dad because my dad's dying of cancer. He's only got about a year to go. Oh, wow. Okay. So I gave up my whole life in L.A. and moved here, and you know, and... You know, luckily enough, you know, the profession, well, kind of luckily enough right now, right now, but I mean, you know, I can fly everywhere and do things I need to do with my bands and stuff, you know, because of that. But obviously because of COVID, it changed everybody's world. But, you know, for right now, I mean, but I'm good here. You know, I mean, luckily enough, I'm in a, you know, a trade that I can travel and do things with, you know, and be fine and go from Chicago to L.A. and back and forth. So, you know, it's all good. You know, this, you know, I kind of knew this day was going to happen and. So uh, last week was a. I've been here only a year. Last week, mm-hmm. so you know, it's a lot. A lot has happened. You know, my dad's got bladder prostate. And great guitar player, by the way. My dad played with Barbara Mandrell for twenty five years. Oh my gosh! And um, yeah, and he played with Rascal Flats and stuff like that too. And you know, I met him through Albert. You know, my I met Albert Lee through my dad. You know, and stuff. And that's how I got to play with Albert off and on. You know, through the years, and I'm still friends with them. We don't play as much together, but sometimes we do. Yeah. And, um, yeah. But, um, you know, 
that's kind of how what happened to me to come out here. So I'm here, and luckily I have another trade I fall back on. So I'm a I owned a construction company for 25 years in Los Angeles, and I was doing five million to fifty million dollar homes in high end painting. That's and amazing. Had, that's awesome. You know, yeah. yeah, dude. So it was like you know, just luckily enough, that's saving my ass right now. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, okay. So just to kind of back up a little bit, um, you moved, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad, man. That, Thank you. That, but Thank I'm, you. it's nice to hear that you can be there for him. And it's in, in a, in a kind of an odd way, there's, there's another silver lining to what's been happening with the shutdown and, and the pandemic and stuff like that is it gives us a chance to be with family without asking the industry to put pause, you know, press pause and, hey, wait for me, I need to go do this, I need to take care of business here or there. And in your case, you know, I, I don't think you're missing a lot of gigs, you know. No, no, a lot have gotten canceled, yeah. but, you know, like everybody else. But, you know, you started, believe it or not, they started booking stuff May 2nd of 2020 is where the cancellation festivals have picked up as far as hurricane goes for us, you know, and you know, who's to tell that's really going to be, we don't, nobody knows the future right now. I know. You, you know, so you're talking May of 2021. Yeah. I mean, 21. Sorry. Uh -huh, sure. Yeah. I yeah. meant to say, yeah. So like May 2nd, we're supposed to be doing a big festival with night ranger, Tesla, Queensryche, LA guns. I mean, it's one of those big festivals, 17,000 seater, the M3 festival. Okay. So, um, but you know, we're keeping that, you know, everything is kind of hushed because of the fans. So they're asking us as, as artists not to be talking about it too much about, I don't know, the promoters are a little weird right now. It's just a really touchy thing, you know? It so. is, it is. And, and, and man, I, oh God, I hope and pray that, that we're back there. While we're on the current news and what's going on, I think this is a really important thing to talk about because we've discussed this many times before when, we have musicians and drummers and all these people that, that have to juggle many things depending on the situation. And sometimes it's not a real glamorous thing to talk about, but I think it's important to talk about to like let people know that it's okay to work non-music gigs. Oh, I'd be more than happy to support that because I used to be the one that thought that other way. Yeah. When I lived in L.A. in the earlier years, you know, musicians, and you're going to know this, you know, you always say, Oh, I got a day job, but don't tell nobody. Right. Because I'm a, I'm a rock star or I want to be a rock or whatever the hell that you want to call yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just people wanted to live in this fantasy world of fame, you know, or it was a bad thing because you had another job. Um, you know what, man? You're an entrepreneur. That's what you become. So you know what? It, that's how you have to look at yourself is because you're, it's a business. I mean, music is your business. And my like my painting company is my business. Well, what's the difference then? You being a musician and open up a burger stand like Mark Wahlberg. Okay, so but he's a famous actor, but he's got a burger joint. So does that make him bad because he's got a burger joint? You know what I mean? So right. I agree with you. People need to understand that. I'm glad you you recognize that. And people fear it. People fear that you're going to lose a gig because somebody finds out that you're you have other, you know, talent. How's that look? Well, exactly. And you know, it's so funny that I believe in this. I subscribe to this concept. And yet last week when I went to post something on Instagram, it was a picture of my van full of tools. 
from different construction oh, things wow. and, and home repair stuff I've been doing for. So you did you do that too? Okay, cool. To to a to a lesser degree. I mean, I am just I'm a homeowner that has learned a lot on his own, and I have friends and like old ladies at church that hire me to come and fix things and do repairs. So I really enjoy that. But I was I found myself again. I subscribe wholeheartedly to this concept, and I'm not embarrassed at all to do. Me neither. This. But I hesitated posting for a split second. I'm like, should I post this? And I said, screw it. I'm posting this. And it's like, hey, I'm not afraid to swing a hammer. These are weird times. Music business is slow. If you need construct, if you need home repair, call me. And I tell you what, man, it turned into some work for me. And I'm very excited. And I love it. Yeah, I hear you, man. I mean... I had 25 years of it with 15 employees. I had a pretty big company, man. That's crazy. And, um, well, I was, dude, if I told you the people, like just yesterday, I was I called Barbara Eden just to wish her a happy birthday. She was one of my clients. Wow. So, you know, uh, Anne Margaret wow. was one of my clients. Yeah. Um, Prince, I did Prince's House. I should tell you the story when I was at Prince's House and I actually played drums with Prince. Okay. At his house. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, man. That's dude, awesome. you know, and I was Vano, I'm Vano, Vano White was my client. Okay. I had to, I say was because I'm not there anymore, but yeah. I did four Vanna White homes, you know, and Vanna was my client. She rented to Prince on one of her homes in, in Mulholland, you know, which was, you know, a $60 million home. Oh my and, and you know, he, he was having an Oscars party one night. And she told me to go up there and spruce it up. So I went over there and brought my team, blah, blah, blah. blah. I can tell the story for freshness if you want later. Um, just giving you a little bit of a, a, you know, footnote so you can know. But yeah, I did. I got to jam with Prince, man, at his house, getting ready for an Oscars party because he needed to test all the equipment, and he and he got frustrated. So my general told him that I'm a drummer, and I went up there to say hi to him, and we started talking for a minute, and then he goes, "Yeah, Mike," because he knew me for like four days already, you know. Yeah, right. And he goes, I, "I didn't know you were a drummer." He goes, "I can see you look like a rocker, dude." But he goes, "Okay, can you beat on the drums for me for a minute while I check all these instruments?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure." And then I said, "Hey, man, I wasn't going to say anything, but I said, but I recorded at Paisley Park," and he goes, "What do you mean?" I go, "Well." I used to play with the Jets, and Kathy, the keyboard player, was my girlfriend, and that's how I got to go in there and record. And I did some some like footnote stuff with with the, with the Jets in there at your studio. And then he was like really really cool with me. But yeah, dude, he played every instrument while I was on stage with him. <laughs> I, that doesn't surprise me. Gosh, but I, I I thought it was cool that I mean it's great to have the gig with him, but I thought it was kind of special that I was in the, his own home playing music with him. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I know that. You just moved back to Chicago, and it's been a year to take care of your dad. August 17th was my year date. Yeah. Okay, okay. And was it difficult to get that work started up again? A lot of my childhood friends still live here, and they're into in the business, you know, carpenters, electricians, whatever you may see. And so I kind of called a bunch of them and said, hey, man, I think I've made my mind up. I, I need to go work for somebody. And you know, I don't want to start my own business back up right now. So I just went to go work for somebody right now. And that's what I'm doing a real simple situation. I'm painting houses. And I'm not doing anything on the level that I was doing in Los Angeles. But that's okay. I don't have the pressure and I don't have the stress and I'm being able to pay my bills right now. Right. And be there for your dad. And be there for my parents and be able to focus on that. And I'm building a recording studio as we speak right now. So and all my endorsements have been grateful to me. I mean, Roland's stepped up for me. Um, Focus Right has stepped up for me. JBLAKG, I've been with five years. They they stepped up big time for me. That's so right. they've all helped me build my studio because of COVID. 
we've decided Hurricane has decided to do the record from a distance. So I'm going to do all the drum tracks here in in Chicago while the rest of the record is being finished in LA with the rest of the crew. That's that's amazing. And you know what so I want to That's something we can talk about too and I'm using a trigger method. I'm using the Roland triggers. The TM6 is what I'm using. Okay. Yeah, I do want to talk about that, but I want to hang back just for a second and if you could give us a little bit of background a little bit of background on your dad, because I know he played a big okay. role in why you do what you do. True, true. Well, my mom was the supporter, and you know, and she's the one that put up with all our <laughs> our nonsense here at the house. Um, but my dad, when I was you know five, and my mom, they got me a drum set, so I started playing drums at five. And then by the time I was, you know, eleven years old, um, you know, I'd always practice with my dad. You know, every day he's a guitar player, so and he had bands and he traveled, and then then he also had local bands. So when he was off the road, he used to use me for his drummer because I didn't want to be a drummer. I wanted <laughs> to be a guitar player. Yeah. And he goes, "Oh no," he goes, "You're going to be a drummer because when I'm home, you're my drummer." <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm I was okay with it, and sure. here I am today. Right, I became a professional drummer. You know, and I don't I can't even play guitar. So the funny thing is, is that, so he weaned me in the country, country rock and fifties rock and roll. And what he did was he just weaned me up. And what happened one night, how I broke into the, into the professional side of the business, his drummer flaked on him one night and they were going to do this, this gig. You know, we have a lot of like clubs out here, like Eagles clubs, Owls clubs, American Legion halls, you know, that's big out here, you know, in the Midwest. And, um, so he asked me at 11 years old one day, I think he goes to my mom. He says, Hey, I think it's time. So my dad goes, Hey, you want to play a gig? It was my first gig. And then that, at 11 years old. And from then on I played pro and I got up to six nights a week by the time I was like 12, 13 years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was playing all the big clubs in Chicago here. And by the time I was 19 is when I left out West. Okay. We do have a lot of listeners from Nashville <laughs> Oh, you great. Know. And so hopefully my buddy Derek Mixon will be listening. Yeah. You know, he's my, you know, Derek, I do. He's been on the show before. Oh, he's one of my buddies, man. You know, cause I'm a, I'm a, I met him through Chris Stapleton cause I know Chris. Yeah. 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 Dude. Yeah. He was great. So can you tell us about your, um, kind of your early history with country? I find it really fascinating. Well, my, the country stuff, you know, my dad was playing, you know, like I said, he, he was played off and on with Barbara and then um, he had another, he used to play with Johnny Cash's cousin, who was named Gene Cash. And so a lot of times I'd end up, you know, sitting in with a lot of his country bands and playing with all these great, great pedal steel players and banjo players and, you know, just all, all these different kinds of great musicians. But country seemed to be the one. And, you know, my dad always said, he goes, look, if you want to make money, the best groove you can learn is a shuffle. Yes. He says, if you learn a shuffle, you will work. Yes. And um, so, yeah, I became kind of like one of those big shuffle dudes. So anyway, so playing with him, I started playing out and, you know, doing gigs, got known around town more with him. He'd take me to jam sessions all the time and I'd be this little prodigy kid that get up there and just, you know, play like I was in my 20s. And I had, you know, my my vocabulary was big because I, I knew a lot of material. Because he, 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 you know, he taught me it all by practicing these songs as a young age. You know, Johnny Cash tunes, Waylon Jennings tunes, um, Del Shannon. Um, you know, I was doing, uh, you know, Johnny Rivers. I mean, all these kinds of people I was learning from him. Uh, so all these other bands started seeing me play. 
And then they they started going up to my dad and said, hey, you know, can we use Mike to play with us? And then <laughs> my parents were cool enough, even at 16, at 15 years old, to let these people take me to the gigs and be responsible for me. And I used to do these gigs, man. That's crazy. And that's that's how I that's how I got into it and I just played every week every week I just played 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 you know um the only thing that got weird about it was that when I was in school um my teachers did you ever see the movie um Whiplash? I have not seen that yet. Okay, well, I kind of lived that life. Okay. Because I had issues with my band teachers when I was growing up and not not all of them, but a few and um there was one that really got me and believed in me and, and he was behind me a big time, but the other ones really were just confrontational with me. I just was so ahead of everybody, you know, whether it was reading things or whatever. I mean, there was times I would play, you know, in the band and the symphony, I would end up playing bass drum with my left hand and I'd play all right handed snare drum patterns. Wow. You know, I would read the music. I'd play both top and bottom at the same time because some of these guys were not competent in high school to, to cover it. So I came in here playing left-hand bass drum, right-handed snare drum. I mean, can you only, I, I don't think I can even do that now. <laughs> you know, and I know you guys are, are educated musicians, you know, both of you guys. And, um, I know you've played with the symphonies, both of you guys and stuff. And well, Zach is—he's got a master's in classical percussion. So. That's amazing, dude. Yeah. I am not on that level. Well, I think like his that. undergraduate is in. Sorry, I take that back. Undergraduate, he started in classical percussion and then went to jazz studies. So yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. But yeah, in my undergraduate work, there was some of that. And I really enjoyed it, but it's a thing, man. At a high yeah, level, yeah, it is. And I appreciate it. And I've experienced it. You know, and I I marched. You know, I played in the symphony band. I played in the jazz band. So amongst playing in my dad's band, I made sure that in school that I always played in all these other other things. And one thing I kind of left out for you as as a kind of a a blooming state for me was when I was in fourth grade, you couldn't be in band until you were in fifth grade. So my parents went down to the school and told them about me and said, look, you know, in fourth grade, and said, look, you know, you should really check out my son. And my mom and dad pushed me, and I got in the band in fourth grade when I was supposed to be a fifth grader. Jeez. <laughs> so they got, I was early, you know? Yeah. But then what happened was, when I was telling you about the band directors having issues with me, there was a few of them that just were always riding me and, and just really tough on me. And, you know, it just, just didn't treat me very good. And, you know, and there was times I had to tell them, like, hey, man, you know, there's a Christmas concert coming up. And they go, you know, and I would practice with the band. And I always tried, you know, and it wasn't like a hidden secret that I played gigs three or four nights a week. Every, my band directors knew that. We talked about it. And, you know, when the Christmas concert came, I'd be like, hey, Mr. Such and Such, you know, I just want to let you know I'm not going to be able to make the Christmas special because I got a gig. And they're like, well, it's going to reflect on your grade and we're going to flunk you. And I says, well, listen, man. I'm making a living like you're making a living. Yeah. And they just couldn't comprehend that at 14, 15 years old. It's a, I, was, yeah. I was helping pay my parents, you know, sometimes I would help them pay a bill in the house. I was making a living, man, you know, and they didn't get it, you know, and I said, well, look, dude, you know, I'm paying bills like you're paying bills. Unfortunately, I'm 15, 16 going to school, but I have a responsibility. I'm helping my folks out, you know, right, and right. I pay bills. Right. It was like 18 when I graduated high school in 85. 
I had started a, I had went to a very short time. I went to a community college to study. Um, I was going to get a performance degree. Yeah. It's a perfect example. And at that time, Jay Leno was actually doing stand-up comedy around college campuses. And he wasn't even the Jay Leno that you know of yet. Right. And I used to walk through the commons and go, who is this guy? You know, sometimes I hear Jay Leno became like the Tonight Show. You know, it's kind of funny, right? And it was a place called Elgin Community College is where I went to. And so to support what you're saying about the teachers, the professors, I had started going to school. And what happened to me is how I ended up migrating out west was I was offered to go out two weeks with a band and play. In those two weeks, I ended up meeting a lot of managers and a lot of a lot of booking agents and a lot of different people in two weeks. I came back to Chicago and the drummer that I had subbing for me actually took my gig. Oh, wow. And I freaked out and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I called a couple of the managements in in Vegas and I go, you ain't going to believe what just happened to me. And they're like, Mike, it's your lucky day. So <laughs> I, I go, what do you mean? They go, well, you know, Anita Pointer's looking for drummers right now. And so I came out and auditioned for the Pointer Sisters and, and got the gig. And that got me out there. And I started playing with all the big showrooms and playing off and on with them. And um, I did the, like, all the old casinos. I was in all of them, like the Frontier and, you know, uh, the Sands. I opened for Sammy Davis Jr. I've got, you know, I got, Sammy came and hung up with me in the green room one time and told me how to handle myself and out in, in, in Vegas as a young kid and how I need to watch out for myself. And, you know, he was really cool with me, you know, that's amazing. And and my roommate ended up being Louis Prima Jr. I ended up living with the Prima family. Jeez. So I ended up, you know, Jimmy Vincent, I started taking some lessons from Jimmy Vincent, you know, and, and stuff like that. And Sam Butera, and I started sitting in with the Sam Butera band and playing all that jump jive. Yeah. So that's how that all happened. But here's the thing. So when I went to, to, to support what you were saying, when I went back to college, I told my professors that I got this one-way ticket. I got this gig. And they go, Mike, school will always be here, but opportunity will never always be there. Right. We, we, we honor it. We support you. Go chase your dream. The snare drum of the week is the 7.5 by 13 buyer snare drum performed by Nashville session drummer Mark Beckett. I want to do uh, just a quick left turn here is give uh, James Beyer a shout out for connecting us. Absolutely. I mean, he's my man. He is a good friend of mine as well as a great snare luthier builder, you know, and, and if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be connected right now, you know, maybe somehow this other way in in the cosmic future, but you know what? It's him that put us together. So yeah, let's, let's put a shout out to, to James for, for helping us out and getting us together and, and, you know, supporting the music community like this. This is awesome. Yeah. It's one of the things that motivates Zach and I to, to do this podcast is, is just kind of building uh, our, our network and, and through, uh, you know, James, the good chance to meet you and to get to know uh, James's product. And, and uh, you know, we don't really talk a lot of, we don't talk a lot about gear and we've been doing fewer and fewer 
uh, ads. But over recent months, we've been doing a little bit of promotion of his drums and getting to know him. And, and that feels good to me. That feels honest because like, I get to know the person. And then on top of it has these killer drums. So I have the 4x15 as of a couple weeks ago. Oh no, kidding! Zach's getting the seven and a half by fifteen. Okay. Um, I have a five. I have the five five fifteen that I'm using on the Hurricane record. Great, great. Well, I was going to ask you what your what your drum is, what your go to is, and uh, what you like about it. And it sounds like that's 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 been... one of them. And then I've got the six and a half by fourteen one point yeah. five steel shell. Um, I'm an Aquarian artist as well. Yeah, so me too. Yeah. yeah, that's cool, man. Actually, he told me that, and I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, so. You know, um, you know, I use the on my fifteen. I use the vintage heads. Yes, I I, I just got the fifteen, and I asked for a texture coated, but I go between the texture coated and the medium weight vintage. Yep, that's what I use. The medium weight vintage. That one seems to be really a powerhouse for me with that certain snare drum. Yeah, yeah. You know, it cuts through the guitars real heavy. You know, um, I used that one when I was with, you know, some of the guys from Racer X and George Lynch. And, you know, I, when I play with guitar-heavy guys like that, I, I pull out Jim snares, man, because they can't do those marshals because these guys are playing with them very loud. <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't have to hit them that hard, man, when I'm, when I'm you know, using that, those drums, man. And, and they cut through those marshals. So, Interesting. You know, or whatever they use. You know what I mean? Some of them as a barber, you know, all these boutique amps but the point is is that they're loud players you know and and you need something that's going to cut through mid-range you know and those drums somehow frequency wise just really cut well for me uh in a rock situation that i've used them for so these two albums that we're working on we're doing 20 songs that have to be done by january and that's why i'm right now i'm, I'm getting this not the only reason why i'm getting this studio set up because i need it for a lot of many reasons because of teaching right i, I need it also for doing other people's albums yep but i also need to get my records done so yeah man so that's what i'm doing i'm setting up an analog and a digital setup so i'll have all mics and i'll have all triggers oh so you say analog and digital you mean like you've got an acoustic kit and you've got an electronic kit yeah but what i'm doing is i'm using my acoustic kit mic'd up with all my AKG stuff. Uh -huh. And then I'm using the TM6 with the rolling triggers that attach to your rims. Yeah. And so I can do cross blending if you want me to, or I can either lay my tracks down with mics or I can lay them down and send you stems just with uh, triggers so that you can do um, sound replacements much easier. That's amazing. I, I mean, I know that you can use trigger afterwards in your DAW, but to do it in real time like that, that that just seems like a cleaner process. Yeah. So this is, so these guys, you know, all these companies are like, well, not all these companies, but Focusrite and, and Roland, I've been spending a lot of time with. And then I have my engineer too as well. So I've got, you know, three things, go, three people that have been very helpful, but you know, it's Roland that told me, how to do this cross blending thing, you know, that really said, Hey man, you got to check this out, you know, and how this goes, because I wanted to buy electronic kit and I'm going, okay, that's four grand. Even at my cost, I can't, you know, I still can't afford it with, with COVID. I don't, you know, I'm not making enough money right now to do that. And so I thought, okay, what's the next best thing? Triggers. Well, listen, man, when I, in 1991, 92, I was making my own triggers out of Pazios. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, with a quarter inch Jack, you know, and I would just, you know, Velcro them to my shell with a quarter inch and plug them in and go. 
So I've been doing Trigger since the early 90s when I was doing all the early rap records. So anyways, it's really cool that it's kind of also full circle for me. But they go, man, you got to check out the cross blending. Yeah. So, and I'll tell you what, they told me a story. Jim Keltner was all over it, man. He was like, I can't believe this whole cross blending thing. So they told me a story about Keltner doing it and how he had no clue about it and how he was just fascinated how this works. So this is what I'm getting myself into now. Yep. That's, that's amazing. And do you feel like the sensitivity is accurate enough that if you're doing ghosting or it's picking up the dynamics in a a musical way? Oh yeah. Let me tell you these triggers, you know, they're not inexpensive triggers. They go for about a, you know, a hundred bucks a piece. Yeah. I know retail, but it's the way they're made. And some of them have two triggers built into them. So it'll actually, they, they basically, they vice themselves on the rim of the top rim of your drum. But some of them have two triggers on them. So one operates the head and one operates the rim. Yeah. So you can you can assign them. Yeah. So so if I want to have timpanis, let's say I'm doing a thing on a gig, I'm playing my floor times, but then I want timpanis, I just hit the rims and I got my timpanis, you know? That's great. And, and the model that I'm talking about is the T is in Tom, M is in Mary, six. It's the TM6 rolling. And that's the one. And it's got a card... Um, a USB card input on the side of it. And what I've decided to do now in the last couple of weeks, and I've had a band meeting and management meetings, and I've told everybody in the band about this, what I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to take these trigger system on tour with me now, When hopefully when we open back up here. And off this new record, I'm going to have all the samples put on this card so I can put it into the TM6. This thing will go into my suitcase. I'll be able to take this on the road put this on my kit because most of the time we are backline now. Right. So, you know, I'm not really even playing my drum company stuff, you know, uh, cause I'm a sawtooth artist and you know, it's not like DW is, you know, is everywhere. Sawtooth isn't everywhere yet. So yeah, me and Vinny Apice are both playing those drums and, yeah. and we love them. And, but the problem is, you know, they try to get our kits out, but not all the time can we do those. Right. And you know that, and, and backlining can be a disaster because sometimes the drums are not taken care of. You're playing on, you know, broken gear. You're, it's just, it's not cool. So this way, I have a consistent sound on every gig I go on. So I just, just plug this in. I hand the front of house a line. I said, here you go. And I got my drum sound. Yeah. And do you think they're going to mic the drums as well? Or are they going to Yes. Go? Okay. I'll, I'll want them to do that because, well, with me and Hurricane, we have a front of house. So we have a guy that actually travels with us. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, my God, when I told him what I'm going to do this round, he, he had no idea. And, I, and he was like, Mike, he goes, you're giving me the chills. This is so cool. <laughs> I go, listen, man, I go, you're going to be able to cross blend on stage. And if we're on a gig where the, the mics just ain't ain't happening, I said, at least you can pull the faders down and just use my other, you know, all my trigger sounds. Yeah. You know, and then we're covered, man. But the triggered sounds are going to be the real sounds from my real drums. Yeah. So. But it's going to be off the next two records, so I'm going to be able to have my drum sound consistent every time, and that's I'm going this way, man. I think this is the way to do it. Uh, and, and I see how you're using that with Hurricane and the the practical application there. I'm already thinking in my mind the the experience that I've had this year tracking more from home, where I'll have a track where I'll start off with cross stick and then go to snare drum in the different parts of the song and the way I've got 
it might, and I'm sure there's a trick to this, that my cross stick doesn't come through or the snare's too loud, you know? It's, it's, and I, I just think about like the ability to really get a strong cross stick sound without having to worry about the volume level. Because then I've had to go in and trigger the cross stick before I send it off to the client because they're not producing this. I'm not producing a record where I can do, I'm, I'm simply sending stems and they want the raw drum tracks. That's what I'm doing. And you know what? This is kind of all new for me, for me personally, because when I lived in L.A., I was spoiled. And I'll tell you why, because I had 50 friends that had studios. Yeah. So, and I go, hey, I'll get my studio. So I was building a studio at one point, and it was a, about an 800 square feet room in the back of my house. And I got divorced, so I lost everything. But Andy Johns and Eddie Kramer were helping me build my studio. That's awesome. And, and then I lost it. So I never got to the point of where I could do it. But now that I'm here, I'm finally doing it. But, dude, I could just call buddy a and buddy b and buddy c and they go hey come over and do the tracks whatever man so i kick them down a couple bucks they run my session and i would do the stuff kind of like what you're doing now but you know of, of being able to do stuff for people well now i'm going to be able to do it on my own like you are yeah and this is a little bit new for me it sounds like you might be a little bit ahead to me I, but i've been doing my research though yeah you know yeah not not by much though man uh you know it it, it in fits and starts but i had the same problem i mean being here in nashville with the studios there are, uh, friends, I, I'd be asking them questions and I'd say, hey, how do you do this? And they're like, why are you asking these questions? It's like, well, I really want to start recording at home. And they would all say, man, don't worry about that. If you get some tracks, you just you just come over here, buy me a six pack or cut me in a little bit on that. Yep, and, you, you and, and save your money and you can just track here. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And then... It, it, you know, this has been a time when so many drummers are like, okay, it's time to get the recording gear together. And I'm like you, man, you know, it's still, I'm still in the beginning stages. I've been slowly getting it together, but I, I started putting out content before I was ready and I didn't have it all dialed in. And I think I lost some clients, you know, because of it. They're like, okay, this is fine. But the, you know, it's like the signal seems a little low and you know, you're not getting the right blah, 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 but Hey, we'll try it anyways. Thanks a lot. Uh, and we'll call yeah. you again. And then they don't. And I'm like, man, like, what did I do wrong? And now I think back on that. I'm like, okay, dude, that's a simple fix. And it's just doing it and having it at home and YouTube and everything. It's all the, the learning curve is steep, but it's moving super fast. And I think it's yeah, easy to find. Yeah, and we're growing. You and I are growing. Even though, hey, look, I know, you know, people, I mean, sometimes I look at like, oh, man, I'm learning this now. And I look at some of my friends that are already like, you know, because a really good example is what's happening with us right now. You go on social media and you see a million guys doing this already, like already, yeah. because they were doing it before. And you know what? Um, and I'm looking at it going, oh, man, I'm really behind. I mean, these guys have been doing it. So they're already like, they're saved because they're they're making money right instantly because they're already set up. So I'm you know I'm just getting set up. But I think but, that you know, the, it's never too late. No, it's not, and I think that we're going to be able to catch up because okay. of the amount of information that's there. And just right now, this idea of triggering and cross triggering stuff like that. Yeah, cross blending. They cross, call it. Cro yeah, cross blending. I I was if needed, and especially like on some heavy rock tracks, I was doing it. Uh, I was doing it in the DAW, 
But man, just just this conversation right now has upped my game. <laughs> wow. Hurricane came, you know, towards the late 80s, you know, so they got, you know, they got kind of snipped towards the end when when Nirvana came and, you know, the, the, the whole alternative change came. So, you know, they were never, you know, they were an arena band, but they never, they always did support. So, you know, they toured with Gary Moore, Iron Maiden, Striper, uh, Cheap Trick, you know, they, they were definitely, you know, in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we got crushed by, you know, our movement, which is not a bad movement, it's just, it's a movement. Right. And, and they got the tail end of it. So, you know, the band put out three records and then, you know, here we, here we are in, in, you know, in the grunge stage of life, you know, in the nineties. So that's kind of what happened to the band and everybody went their own way. Everybody started putting solo records out and then, you know, here we are 30 years later and we're putting a record out and I've actually been in the band longer than Jay Shellen. And, and, you know, Jay is playing, you know, with, with, um, um, playing with yes. So he, you know, he was the drummer that played on, on three of the albums, you know, Jay Shellen, fantastic human being, um, great drummer, you know, but has moved on. And now I've been in the band actually longer than he was in the band. So I've been in the band for 13 years now. So, um, but, you know, we've never actually recorded any records. We've just done live touring and, and things like that. And so now after 30 years of Hurricane's history, we're putting out a record and we're doing a double record. I can't really say because we were told not to say the concept of what we're doing, but um, it's going to be really cool. Um, you're going to really dig what we're doing. We're going to put a hard rock record out, definitely a heavy record. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people want to see the band rock. You know, the two original members of the band are Robert Sarzo, which is Rudy Sarzo's brother, and then Tony Cavazzo, which is Carlos Cavazzo's brother, which are the members of, you know, God bless Frankie Bonelli, you know, um, rest in peace, my big brother. But, um, you know, this band is very tight in that unit of Quiet Riot, Hurricane Era. I mean, it's it's a family because it's all siblings, you know, so we're very tight with the Quiet Riot family, you know, and, um, because of the brothers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So here we are, you know, and we got a great new singer. Um, matter of fact, the singer of our band is a drummer <laughs> and, and he plays with a very famous, uh, Latin artist, Maricela, and he's the drummer for Maricela, which is a very, they do pretty big stuff. I mean, 10,000 people, 5,000 people a night, you know? Wow. And, um, but he's an amazing singer. And he, you know, so he joined forces with us and that's what we're doing. So we're, we're a very happy family, man. And, and, um, we've got a game plan, we've got an outline and we're, we're doing it. So we've got a single coming out. I can't tell you when the date's going to be because I don't know yet, but we're out with the song is finished and all we are is waiting to get the video done. And we're almost done. We got all my video footage done here in Chicago and now the boys are all getting their video footage done in LA. And then they're going to put it, the videographer is going to put it all together. Nice. That's how we're doing this, man. It's crazy. So how'd you get started in the band? You know, I used to be in a band with a guy by the name of Dave Ezrin, who was Bob Ezrin's son. And Bob Ezrin was, is a famous producer. You probably know, you know, Pink Floyd, Peter Gabriel, mm-hmm. Kiss, Rod Stewart. Yeah. Um, you know, he, I mean, he discovered Alice. And, you know, Alice was his godfather, too. So I was in this band while Dave was playing with Lita Ford, he was the keyboard player for Lita. So we became 
a band, and who used to share a lockout unit with us was Robert Sarzo. So Robert, this was after Hurricane broke up, Robert was working on his solo stuff, and we befriended each other, and then we lost touch for many years. And then I was playing with this jazz thing in downtown L.A., and she's like, hey, do you know a guy by the name of Robert Sarzo? I go, yeah, I know Robert really well. I go, but we just lost touch. He came that night to see it, and we, we basically reunited, and we, we brought the band back up. That's how it happened. And he wanted me to play drums in the band. He called Tony Cavazzo, and Tony's like, yeah, I'd love to have Mike play with us. And then we got the band back up, and then we just had a real bad run with singers, man. We just couldn't find a good enough singer to follow Kelly Hansen's footsteps, you know. And well, Kelly's been 12 years in Foreigner now. So, um, so anyways, that's what happened. So we just been battling it, you know. And then in the meantime of trying to keep the band, you know, trying to figure it all out, we all tour with different people. And, right. you know, one of my claim to fame is guitar player gods. I pretty much go out with guitar players, you know. So that's pretty much... I didn't do it intentionally. It just happens that way. Yeah, so I became yeah. this good drummer that's played with all these big guitar players. And, you know, and then the last one, big show, big thing I did, which I was very flattered. was, I don't know, in some of the um, checking out what I've done, um, I did the, the Band of Friends was the Rory Gallagher celebration tour. Okay. And I was honored to be able to, to carry the torch for Ted McKenna. You know, and, you know, Ted passed away last year and he was Shanker's drummer. And um, but he was one of the original drummers with Rory. Mm. And um, so, man, you talk about an honor seat, man. I had drummers all over the world privately text me in social media and it was like, wow, you're doing you're, it's amazing. You're, you're playing with Ted McKenna's spot. You know, it's what a, what a driver's seat. You know, what a big shoes to fill, you know, and that's how that all happened. But. Um, well, what's a gig like that like? I mean, is is are, are you expected to be a clone, or do you? They want you to have your own voice. I mean, how do you handle? That's always that's always a challenge. Sometimes is to straddle that line and what the yeah, artist you know, it, it is, and it's a real interesting concept because, for one, Ted McKenna was considered like the number one Scottish drummer. Uh, he was like the number one drummer in Scotland, and he was in a band back in the day called Alex Harvey sensational which i don't know if you're familiar with a lot of the european stuff but alex harvey and the sense and uh, it, it was really in the 70s the late 60s really unique band you have to check them out matter of fact when i ran into george lynch at a my party doug threw a going away party for me doug pinnock mm-hmm. and and george happened to be there and, and george is going so what are you doing mike and i said well, i'm doing this that and the other and you know and you know i just i've been playing a lot of the blues stuff and stuff and he's like blues he goes just like ting, 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 ting. Like I go, no man. I'm a, I played heavy rock blues. I go, you know who Rory Gallagher is, right? And he goes, of course. I go, dude, I just did the tour, and you know for the celebration tour, and Ted Ted McKenna, and he's like, oh my gosh. He goes, dude, that's crazy. And I go, yeah, some of the Alex Alex Harvey band guys. He knew exactly because it's it's proper legendary stuff. It's like it's like these are the the heavyweights of the business. You know what I mean? So yeah. so when I got the call to do the gig, I had two weeks to learn 30 songs. Wow. I started learning Rory Gallagher's material, and I thought, all right, I'll just chart it all out, because I normally chart everything, right? Yeah. I started listening to this music, and I'm going, there's no way I'm going to be able to chart this stuff. <laughs> it's just it's just too, it's too live and spontaneous to chart. Yeah. So I memorized 30 songs in two weeks. Oh, my gosh. Went to two rehearsals 
one only being me and the guitar player, and then Jerry McAvoy, who is the original only bass player for for Rory Gallagher, flies out the second day. Now, you know when you're just fumbling with a guitar player, that's not a really a rehearsal. That's more like, let's just go through the motions and ABA form and outline and just right. see where everything goes, right? right? Right, So that was that, which was important. So then the next day, yeah, Jerry flies out, dude. In four hours, we had one four-hour rehearsal of 30 songs. The next day, I was on a plane. Jeez. And he shook my hand, and he gave me a hug, Jerry McAvoy. And I go, thanks, man. He goes, no, thank you. He goes, you did your homework. I appreciate that. It goes a and long that's way, how man. I got the And that's how I got the gig. Yeah. So then this is where it gets crazy. So now you're asking about how all this goes on in this band, right? Well, I didn't know what a cult following that Rory Gallagher had. And and dedicated, you know, fans of the level they had. It was kind of like the Grateful Dead level, you know. Mm-hmm. So we we were in Kentucky, first gig at a converted church. Okay, so I'm getting ready to go on stage, and we're we're saying our prayers to each other before we go on. We get a little honey going. There's about 300 people in the audience. <clears throat> the stage is about chest height. Thank God. I go up the three stairs to get up on stage. They go, all right, let's go. I go up on the stage. I start walking up the three stairs. I had my drumsticks in my hand. <laughs> Thank God. And I'm going to tell you why. I get up on that stage, Matt. I heard all the chairs scoot backwards. Every person in that room stood up, had a drumstick in their hand, and it said, Rest in peace, Ted McKenna. And they all chanted, Ted McKenna, Ted McKenna, Ted McKenna. And they ran the stage. They all plowed against the stage. They, they just like ran up to the stage, everybody. And they had their sticks in their hand. And all I could do was go, oh, my God. Oh. Now what do I do? And I took my sticks and I started chanting with them. And yeah. I just went, Ted McKenna, Ted McKenna. And I did. I just did it with them. And I got behind the drums, man. And I didn't know what to expect. And I just started playing. Dude, this mind you, this is the first show, first gig, first song. I mean, I'm just like, and this was my this was my greeting. Yeah, I w- I've never had a situation like that in my life, and I'm going, oh my god, this is some heavy stuff. Yeah. So I start playing the second song. Now I had on that tour, I had the five five and a half by fourteen steel one point five shell from Jim. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, the fifteen just didn't have. See, the 15 with that band wasn't a quick enough response for me because the head was an inch bigger. So I needed something a little faster right. for my sticks. Right. So I used that one, dude. And that was the best snare. Great choice that I did to take his snare out because it, this was the perfect for a three-piece power trio. And um, we did – so I started playing, right? Second song kicks in. Dude, the first hit. Now, mind you, I used the, the Aquarian with the – like the you know the the um what's the i forget the name of the head it's the one with the dot in it but it's yeah. on the underside not yep. on the on the top side i think it's power dot yeah the power dot mm-hmm. dude i hit it i broke the head oh no on the first snare hit brand new head i've never done this before now let me tell you what happened that dot the circle broke completely straight clear through and it went up in the air and flew into the audience <laughs> I've never seen anything like that happen on a drum before. And man, I'm not kidding you. I, the guys looked at me like, what happened? And they seen the, the, the plastic of the drum fly out into the audience. 
And I, I'm thinking, oh, my God, Ted McKenna is here. Yeah. He's with me. Yeah. <laughs> he let me know he was there, and I was in a church. Yeah. So it was really a trip. So I had a backup snare, of course, so I threw that back on. But anyways, that's my experience with a band like that. That was crazy. And, you know, I went into the meet and greets, and everybody was very nice to me. They they said to me that that they that Rory would be proud of me and Ted would be proud of me for what I gave them. And so they accepted me, and I was worried about being accepted. Yeah. And it was pretty crazy. So um, that happened to me through the whole tour. It was a five-week tour. When I ended up in Philly, you know, the people out there are a little bit thicker-skinned out there. So when I did the gig out there, I had a couple of people come up to me at the meet-and-greet, and they kind of looked at me weird, and they were just like, well, you know, you're not, you're not the original cast of Rory Gallagher, but, you know, and they kind of were a little bit trippy with me at first. And one guy came up to me, and he's like, you know, man, he goes, I got to shake your hand. He goes, I really didn't come to see you. Because I came, to, I came to see Ted McKenna and had no idea that he passed a few weeks ago. And I says, "Blessings to you and blessings to him." He goes, "But I got to tell you, Mike." He goes, "You freaking killed that shit." That's and awesome. he goes, "He goes, I have no choice but to, to to tell you what a great job you did." I'm talking about hardcore fans, man. Yeah, that's that's tough, man. And I've heard stories like that before, where people are just they're just not there to see a replacement or something, nope. you know. Nope. So that's that's good, man. That's good that you got that. And fans, so fans aren't aren't going to be uh, kind about it. They'll they'll be honest with you. Oh, they were honest, man. And and it was just it. You know, sometimes I it kind of like hurt my feelings a little bit. You know, when you got treated like that. But then at the same time, I I understood what was going on. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, it takes a real big person to be able to do something like this. You know, I mean, not just any person, whether it be a guitar player, drummer, singer, whoever it is, it don't matter. To be put in a position like that is much greater than just getting a gig because a drummer got fired or he quit or a guitar player quit. This is a guy who passed away unexpectedly for no reason. Ted went in for a hernia operation and didn't wake up. Yeah, there's there's crazy. I mean, Larry London's story is very similar yep. to that. You know, that that yep. stuff sucks. That's awful. Yep. So to be accepted was amazing in that group of people and that level because you know guys like Brian May, you know, would go out and watch Rory Gallagher play. You know, I mean, you know, Vivian Campbell met me. You know, because I know all the guys in in Last in Line, and I didn't know Vivian, and so Vinny and the guys all introduced me and. You know, they said, hey, he played with Rory Gallagher's thing. And he's like, because he's from Ireland, you know, and, and so is Rory. And he goes, you know, Mike, he goes, he goes, wow, what an honor to meet you. I'm thinking, wow, you played with Def Leppard and, you know, mm -hmm. you, you know, you're Vivian Campbell. And, you know, and he actually said it was an honor to meet me. And I'm thinking, dude, that's really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you. But OK. And he goes, well, let me tell you something, because I never met Rory. The years I lived in Ireland, I never knew him, but I always wanted to meet that man. And he says, you know, he says, hats off to you for such a great gig. You know, so that was that kid. Here's an example of our friend Mark Beckett on a track using the six and a half by 14 buyer snare drum. I'd love to ask you about your relationship with Doug Pinnock and the different projects that you've done over time. I know you have a, a history with him. We've got a lot of Kings X fans and, and and such. Yeah, Doug and I, 
We go back to 1992. Um, I was in a band called Tribe After Tribe. Yeah. And they were from South Africa. And the bass player that used to be in the band before Doug was in the band was Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam. Yeah. So um, I came into the band when this album Pearls Before Swine came out. I'm trying to remember. the. It was like 93. And Jeff couldn't do the tour because Pearl Jam was going back out. So this band ended up opening for Pearl Jam and uh, Pennock became involved in that band with us. And so we did some dates with Pearl Jam because of Jeff was still glued to the band. And so that was a cool thing. I'm kind of making it a short and sweet thing a little bit, how I, I got to meet Doug. So then Doug became part of the band because um, Robbie, the founder of the band, you know, had said, man, what are we going to get to play bass? And then we have a friend down in Texas by the name of Kelly Watson. He's a really cool dude. And, um, you know, not a player, but a music appreciator and a really great friend. Matter of fact, he's in this this New Orleans beautiful Hurricane Laura right now. And um, anyways, he goes, you know, we should call Doug, you know, with his little accent. Let's call Doug. Let's, let's call Doug. You know, and they're all Texas boys. So Doug gets on the phone and he took the gig. And then that's how I met Doug. And then we played this tour together. It was the Pearls Before Swine tour. And then after that, we ended up befriending each other. I think Doug was, God, I think he was 39 years old when I met Doug. Because when we were in Vienna, Austria, I took him to a bar for his birthday. And he was just turning 40. And wow. now Doug's 69. I know. I know. He's crazy. And he looks great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so Doug and I just became really good friends and we grew good together. We clicked on stage together. We chemistry wise, we were, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so one thing led to another and we just became friends for many years and we played with this band off and on, you know, which is, this is kind of like a, it was a acid rock band and wasn't really a high profile band, but it was an underground band, you know, it was an indie rock band. So, you know, Doug would go out with King's X and do his stuff, you know, and, you know, as well as being an underrated band as well, you know. Sure. Um, so he would go out and do his thing. And then all of a sudden, then we became this next record that was coming out with Tribe After Tribe, and it was called The Enchanted Entrance. And Doug played completely on that record with me. And um, that was kind of the start of, of a whole other level with him and me after that record came out. And then just about... Three years ago, I'm kind of speeding it up now. Yeah. So yeah. I've known I've known Doug, like I said, from '92 till today. So Doug calls me about three years ago. It'll be three years ago now. God, it flies. <laughs> and he goes, Rat Pack Records wants to do a solo record with me. And he goes, I want to do a Jimi Hendrix tribute record. And he goes, and I want you to play on the record because I follow the footsteps of of the Jim, Mitch Mitchell's kind of vibey stuff, you know. And <laughs> if you listen to the record you'll kind of give it away. And and it, it, it's a really cool record because the reason why I like this tribute to Jimmy that, that Doug did, he, he played some of the B cuts on the record, but he also, it's not a guitar-driven record. Hmm. It's a vocal-driven record. And that's the cool thing because most people you know as well as I do, when they come out with this Jimi Hendrix tribute record or whatever they're doing, it's, 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 it's just guitar stuff. It's just guys that are just going crazy on their guitar most of the time. I'm not saying it's not tasteful or untasteful. I'm just saying what's driving the record usually. And 
not this record, man. So you got to check this record out, and it's on it's yeah. on Rat Pack. Yeah, you know, it, it. I was reading an article about it, and they they were talking about that that Doug wanted to create a, a vibe and a sound as if Jimmy was alive today. And what yes. would he sound like? How would he approach some of these classic songs that we all know? Like, how would yes. he play them now? And that's what he told us when we were in the studio. You know, we were all sitting in the control room, and he goes, listen, here's where I'm coming from. He goes, if Jimmy was alive today, how would he play these songs? He says, keep that in perspective when we're playing this. Mm-hmm. And then we had to keep that in perspective. Now, mind you, each of the songs that you'll hear on the record, I did every one of them between one and two takes. Every one of them. Wow. And I finished them all in one day. <laughs> so I got them all done. Yeah, it was pretty pretty quick. I played on a 1968 Slingerland kit, all maple. It was really killer. And um, I had a selective amount of Zildjian cymbals that I used because what we did is we went through each of the songs. And Mike Parnon, an amazing engineer, producer, um, just an amazing guy. He went into each song and, and basically just listened to what Eddie Kramer was doing through the process of each tune. And he basically tried to replicate most of his moves on the board from panning to to whatever he did, you know. And not to know that, you know, a lot of those reversed gating sounds that you, we did on uh, a lot of the sounds that, you know, Jimmy did when you heard the re- reverse stuff that you think they were snare drums, they were actually ride cymbals, man. Wow. So, so what do you mean? I mean, can you explain that a little bit? Like, like, um, like, you know, if we were experienced, that song called, if we were, mm-hmm. if we were experienced, yeah. the beginning goes, cha, 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 cha. Okay. That's a ride cymbal, dude. That's not a snare drum or anything else. Oh, that's that's off God. the bell of a ride. And it's, it's basically what they did is they took the ride and reversed it on a gate. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's, that's I didn't either. That's super cool. <laughs> I, I learned all this stuff as we were going. We, we we got into it and we learned the history of it. Now, mind you, I mean, I worked with Eddie before this album was done, Eddie Kramer and stuff. But I mean, we didn't reach out to Eddie and ask him any questions. We did it all on our own. We just did our own research, and you know, it was really cool. So we all learned so much of the production of how Eddie Kramer and Jimi Hendrix did this record of his songs and. So a lot of people probably don't know that stuff. But here's the interesting part. So you've got a reverse gate, but there's a, there's also a tone of that gate that takes place. So depending on what ride symbol that I did that pattern on, it sounded different depending on what ride it was. So I had about three or four rides that we had, and I had to figure out what ride sounded the same as closest of the bell to get that reverse gate sound to make it implicate what that what they were doing at that time wow yeah and i changed my hi-hats for different songs i changed my crashes now mind you the drums stayed pretty much the same the tuning and everything um you know it it, it depended you know what we did so i used jim snares on that too i used the 15 on a couple tracks um i used the pearl free floater Mm -hmm. on a couple tracks and i used the roger snare on a couple tracks i have an old Rogers five and a half by fourteen. Gotcha. That I use in steel. So you know it was a combination of things. But um, going back to talking about Doug. So you know Doug when he wanted to do this record, that's kind of where his head was at with everything. And you know Doug played guitar on some of that stuff too, mind you. And you just I just don't I couldn't tell you where it was at in the song that he did it. But a guy by the name of Tracy Singleton, 
fabulous guitar player as well. He told me, he goes, Mike, we're going to get Tracy. Tracy used to play guitar for Fishbone and he played with Mother's Finest wow. as well. Mm-hmm. And Tracy plays a seven string or eight string guitar. And anyways, he said to me, he goes, Mike, if anybody's going to be able to know the innuendos of Jimi Hendrix, it's going to be Tracy Singleton. And dude, let me tell you, man, he came in there and I think Doug picked the right guys. And there was this other guy by the name of Tommy Baldwin, a fabulous guitar player. He played on um, the last track of that tune, which was Voodoo Child. And he played on that one as well. He played on one track of that. But I played on everything on the whole thing, on the whole record. And you know what, man? I think Doug just painted the picture right, man. He just picked the right guys. And, and, but the problem with the record, I thought, was that, you know, I, I thought that, you know, that the label could have done a better job of, of marketing the album because nobody knows about it. And I felt that for all the work that went into this record, that I thought they could have done a better job of pushing the record, and they didn't. Yeah, always, man. It's such a drag. Well, I mean, hopefully people will check it out, and, and being able to access that stuff is a little bit easier these days. You know, time-wise, like you can just you could jump on your phone and like, oh, cool, but I need to hear this for real. So, like, get better quality versions of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, Doug, sure. Doug is Doug is like my brother, though. He's 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 not just one of my best friends, but he's he's my family. He's one of my brothers, and um, you know, I don't say that lightly as a brother. Some people use the word brother as that, but no, dude, we are very, very, very close. It's awesome. And uh, yeah, and it's funny because when I played in Los Angeles. People would always see us when Doug finally moved to L.A., you know, you know, I was one of Doug's go to guys. I mean, look, Doug knows a million people, you know, but there's a selective amount of people on his hand as well that he comes close to. And, you know, I mean, Doug almost was going to live with me when I when he came out there, you know, because I told him, look, you can come stay with me for a while until you get on your feet, you know, because it's such a hard place to to live at first when you don't have any money. You know, (laughs) Um, it takes a lot of money to move there. I know. So, yeah. So, you know, 35 years of my life there, he just was wore out on Texas. He realized he needed to be in the right spot. And I'll tell you what, by him making his move to Los Angeles was the best thing he ever did for his career. And he and, and I'm grateful for him for that. Um, obviously, you know, I don't I didn't see him as much because, he, you know, everybody wants him on everybody's record. Everybody wants Doug on the record. And and uh, so it's just great that I was able to do an album with them and you know we were going to go do the tour with it and then you know things get crazy and so we haven't we'll, we'll go out on the road again I know we will you know we're that we're that close where we will do a project again together it's just um right now it's just a different time you know and um but uh you know I just I'm just grateful to have such a great friend like him you know well, I hope you guys do tour, and I hope you I hope Nashville is one of the stops, man. That would be. Great. Oh yeah, you know that we'll be there, and um, I'll definitely call, you know, mixing up too, and have him come out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. We're, all, we're all we're all pocket drummers, man. You know, I mean, you know, I could play the fancy stuff, but it's funny people consider me more of a pocket drummer, and but I can whip out all the other stuff. You know, I just don't choose to do it sometimes. You know, yeah. I just, you know, it's okay. It's I tell people, drumming. I, you know, some people ask me about chops, and I explain people what chops are. I said, chops are a color palette, you know, just like a painter. You know, the more colors you have, the more colors you can make. So that's how I look at having skill sets like rudiments and chops and different things like that. But when it comes down to it, man, it's all about the groove, you know. If you don't have the groove, you can't do the chops. Right, right. 
Yeah, and, and and there's there's people like me that that say, well, I'm I'm more of a groove player because I have no chops. So uh, <laughs> that's a good. Go-to. Well, hey man, you know it's <laughs> but it's it's just what you got in your arson, you know. It's like okay, I got four screwdrivers. Well, I got one, and that one does the job for me, right? Well, so, ex- exactly, and and that's the thing. If I had to choose between having, and you know, I use this word, you know, loosely. If I had tricks. Or groove, I'd rather have groove. But to, to be able to, the other thing I've learned, though, is that to have some stuff to, when needed, when called upon, to elevate a song or a live situation, it is good to have that stuff. You can't always be like, well, I'm a groove player. Sometimes you need to kind of get some of that shit together because the artist wants it from the drummer. Or yep. the audience wants it from the drummer. So it's it's not an either-or thing. It's not a black-and-white situation. Uh, there's definitely times that you need to be able to pull out some things uh, because, hey, we're entertainers. Yep. Hey, I yep. got one more question for you. Okay, sure. Um, your time in the 80s, you mentioned you when you moved to uh, Las Vegas, you were playing with the Pointer Sisters. And you also did some touring with Paula Abdul. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. I'm real curious to know kind of what it was like during that time to tour, you know, gear wise, uh, playing wise. You know, now there's in ears and click tracks, and you know, it's it's production has become a little bit more mainstream, even as technology has gotten bigger. Like that technology is now available to the clubs, you know, to run in ears and do all this stuff. But I, I just think of these tours, especially someone like Paul Abdul is just kind of at her height around that time. Like what some of that stuff was like and what you were expected, what was expected of you? Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting you say, cause I mean, most of these, some of these, you know, these gigs with Paul and, and, and pointers and, and, and my rap stuff, um, you know, I most of it, you know, it was all short-lived stuff. I mean, nothing was like too lengthy of, of my life of playing with them all. But you know, my experience, yeah, with the click tracks and all that stuff. Here's here's how things used to run. So yeah, we didn't have in ears then. We had monitors. We had wedges. Um, we had headphones. Um, we had four trackers. We had um, uh, samplers. Yeah. We had drum machines. Right. So the things that I used to be up against was. First of all, people were just developing triggers when I was playing. Nobody even really, it was kind of all new. It was like, oh, we got to figure out, you know, oh, check out this. We can actually hit the drum and send a signal to a brain that goes into your drum machine and causes that drum machine sounds that are built in to register to the audience, you know what I mean, to the front of house. So there was different ways people were trying to implicate transferring sound samples into a speaker right so i had different setups man and i'll tell you here's the setups that i had you're gonna you're gonna trip out on this so when i was doing the pointer stuff and i was doing some of the paul abdul stuff we had the task cam four tracker cassette tapes (laughs) yeah and and we i'd have two of them that used to sit beside me and i used to run the tapes i used to have to cue the tapes up every night because they used to stretch sometimes and i had to there was a button on there that used to have to tune it. So I used to have to tune the cassette tapes because they, after time they got old and they stretched. So you'd have to always like 
every time you get on stage, you have to calibrate the machines uh, with the keyboard player to make sure they're in tune before you went on stage. How about that? I, right? have, I have an old Yamaha four-track you get cassette it. <laughs> thing, and there was a tuner on there. I, I, remember, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking The speed of the tape oh to match gosh, the pitch. Right? Yeah, it's crazy. Every night, and sometimes it wasn't on, dude. Sometimes it would shift. And that was one of the things. The next thing was bad about it was when the tape stopped in the middle of a sh- song. What do you do in a situation like that? Yeah, you can't right? start it because it was going to start where it stopped. That's right. So you either you have to finish the song without it's. It was really just rough, rough stuff, man. Then the other thing that I used to have lined up to, with me with my drum machine stuff was I had an SP twelve hundred. And I used to run an SB-1200 with two Akaya 1000Ss, and I used to use samplers. So with the floppy disk, with the 3M floppy disks, and I used to sample sounds from records on my own. Mm-hmm. And I used to do it myself and go into a studio, and 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 basically we used to call those, what, back in the day we called those, um, oh, God, what was the name of it? Where we used to do just single note hits. He used to just do the hits at the end of a song. So if they wanted to change a snare hit because it wasn't lining up or it sounded right, they would just, you would do, um, what was the name we used to use the term? When you used to just do a snare, uh, they were all singles. So that at the end of a session, the engineer had each of the drums all by itself in case he had to sound replace a drum that just didn't sound right or something, right? That's the way we used to have to do it, right? Yeah. So... I used to go in and I used to go on the John Bonham, you know, Led Zeppelin albums and all these different records. I don't, I, I, a plethora of them. And I used to try to find without the symbols or anything that got in the way. And I used to have to sample, make my own samples. How's that sound? Sure. I used to have to do that. So that's how all that happened. But what helped me with that is when I used to go on tour, because I, I don't know if you noticed, but I toured with Digital Underground too, yeah. the Humpty Dance. Mm-hmm. So I toured with Greg Jacobson and all those guys and, and, we, we had a band called Onyx with um, a guy by the name of Kenny McLeod who did all the productions for Greg Jacobson. And before Tupac was even Tupac, he was a dancer in the band. He was only 16. So we did like 36 shows with Public Enemy. And so I used to use the Akaya 1000s and an SP1200 behind me. And I, I built my own triggers. I was telling you earlier in our conversation out of the Paisios that I used to buy them at Radio Shack for like a dollar. Yeah, and I, I used to make them, and I used to solder quarter inch jacks to them, and that's how I made my samplers, my um, my uh, my uh, what do you call my connections, so that I had my my triggers into my machines. That's how I used to have to do it, man. It's, back in the day. I mean, I I realize it's not really helpful <laughs> for this. I just I don't know some of this information. I just I find fascinating and. And especially for those of us that were alive during that time and, and really starting to get interested in music or remember that time to think about what was going on, uh, yeah. especially when electronics and and all that non-organic percussion sounds were becoming part of pop music. Yeah, and, MC500, remember that one? Yeah, for sure. And Dude, the MC500 was like our, our god to us, remember? Yeah. Yeah, dude, I have friends. I mean, they're still around. You know, if you listen to a lot of the Paula Abdul stuff and you listen to the Jets, those bands, that was the MC500. What was the Jets? What was their big hit? 
rocket to you. I got a crush on you. Yes, yes. Oh my God, that, I was thinking that was that was it. Sometimes I'll sing yeah. I'll sing songs like that to my kids if I just want to annoy the crap out yeah. of them and oh, just man. be like some, hey, some band, you know. That was our era, you know, of yeah. all these in sync bands. Man, this was the beginning of that. You know, yeah. they were the first family band to come out as a group like that before Backstreet Boys, before New Kids on the Block, all those bands came out. They were the beginning of that. That was Don Powell was the management company that handled a lot of those group bands like that back in the day. Yeah. And um, uh, Lou Pearlman, too. Okay. He was another one. Yeah, that name sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. Well, he was the big Backstreet Boy guy. Okay. You know? Yeah, he was. that was his thing, you know. And then he ended up, obviously, you know, going to jail and for bad things, but you know, he's, he's passed since, but, um, that's how yeah. I know the name, not because of my Backstreet Boy obsession, <laughs> yeah. uh, but probably because of the yeah. news, you know, he was called bad street boys, not backstreet, but bad street. <laughs> he did some bad things. Shame oh on him. my God. Oh but my God. yeah, man. So Dude. I was into that whole group of stuff for a while doing all those pop bands and stuff like that. So pop and R and B after I got out of the country stuff with my dad, that's what happened to me. I went from country, country rock to 50s rock to be an R&B pop artist, drummer. Then I became a rock drummer. Yeah. That's how it happened. But it, but it makes so much sense. I mean, you know, think about some of the some of the just the classic heavy rock guys that we all just love, whether it's Mitch Mitchell or Bonham, like they all had swing. They all had oh, yeah. the best shuffle. Uh, that we continue to try and emulate, you know, because their heroes could swing hard. And so to know that this is your history and, you know, that you were playing, you know, real country, old school country, but that needed to swing, needed a good shuffle into the R&B, that it just, it just makes sense to me that you can pretty much cover just about anything and, you know, you're going to be able to play behind whether it's you know George Lynch or Paul Gilbert or any of these guys. They're going to be like, "Yep, I can solo around this. I can I can play guitar, I can play all this stuff while this guitar while this drummer holds it down." You know? Yeah, and you know, and the reason why I think that a lot of my gigs with guitar players have happened is because of my dad. And I'll tell you why, because I was, I grew up with a guitar in my ear as a child for so many years. I, you know, you key in on instruments in life. Like if my dad was a piano player, I probably would have been more yeah. prone to piano. Sure. So when I go out with these guitar gods and these different guitar players, I, I look at their hands when I play and I, I look at certain things in their neck movement and the behavior of their guitar playing. And I can feel that when I play, mm-hmm. even if they're not facing me. Yeah. If let's say I can't see their hands, right? I have weird ways of telling. I can see their human behavior of how they play, that makes me execute some things that I don't know that I'm going to be executing. You know, it, like some people say, "Oh, it's chemistry." Well, it is chemistry, but it's also paying attention and listening, and really like listen, watching that person be play. You know, a lot of times when I'm on the road too, like if I'm playing with a with a musical director and he's a piano player, I always say, "Look, man." Is there a way that you can turn your keyboard so I can see your hands a little bit? I use that a lot of times when I play. If I'm not totally familiar with the music or I'm trying to learn something or it's just fresh out of the gate on a tour, sometimes you don't have everything locked in 100%. You know what I mean? As a player, you you, you have it, but you don't have it. You know what I mean? It's like you've got about six shows to go before it gets tight. So you've got to be able to, uh, you know, watch people. 
Yep. Not just listen to people. Yep. It's so important to watch the members as well as to listen to the members. Even if it's a band you've been in for a long time, to be able to read that body language. Yes, have a it's head, so important. Yep, to have a heads up. When when the song, the vocalist is supposed to start, but he's not even close to the microphone, you know what? Guess what? We're going to do the intro. We're going to go around one more time. It's little things like that that sometimes set you apart and and other other band members and people that are in charge of hiring you they recognize that. Oh, yeah. They know right away, too. They'll know. Yeah. And I've been told that before, too. The people have come up to me and going, dude, you really, you can tell you got experience. I mean, the way you picked up on everything I did, like you grabbed it all. Well, the reason why I grabbed it is because I know what to look for. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? And you know what gets you that? Experience. Yeah. Yeah. You just got to do it. Yep. You can't, you can't just go into a textbook and learn that or go down in your basement and like you're going to learn you know, a freaking Steve Gadgroove or something. That's something that you learn when you have to have hours playing live to learn that. You you can't learn that on your own and then take it out. You know what I mean? I think that's what's kind of freaking me out right now. Like uh, during this downtime, I'm doing some concentrated studying and in the practice room, and you know, uh, but it's it's my I'm I'm worried about my live chops, like my ability to like really read. The situation. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's like riding a bike, and everybody's kind of in the same. But it's going to be interesting when we all get back into it. How it's how much it it will affect this time off, quote unquote time off, is going to affect the way we perform live. I don't know. Yeah, I think because of the Zoom thing, and everybody's on there playing with like four or five people, ten people. I think that's you know that's all we got, you know, yeah. visually to to feed on each other. Um, in a live situation, that's all we've got. You know, it's like, it's kind of crazy, man. But, um, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that we'll, you'll ever lose it because a lot of times what I do is I close my eyes when I play mm-hmm. and, you know, I try to get within myself sometimes, even live, even with the band, even though I say you're supposed to watch your players, but I'm saying sometimes, you know, when you get, when you get lost in your song and lost is not a bad thing. Lost is a good thing. Lost means you're connecting. Yeah. You know, it's like meditation. So, you know what? If I always tell people, if you can't see it in your head, then, you know, it you know you got it is what I'm trying to say is if you can see it, meaning the pattern, yeah, the groove or whatever you're doing, whatever it is, if you can see it, then you really know it. You know? That applies so much to home recording. And I'm, I'm going to explain myself here is now that a lot of us are kind of coming full circle to in this conversation. Now that we're pl- we're wearing different hats, not only are, do we have to be drummers, but we have to be engineers. And we're doing a lot more home recording now is that we're looking at a screen and we're seeing all our tracks and we're seeing how it looks. And oftentimes we make the mistake, myself included, of mixing with our eyes, hearing with our eyes. And mm-hmm. when I'm listening to maybe multiple takes of a song and I'm trying to figure out which drum take I want to send to a client, I, I have learned to turn my head away or take the computer screen with my headphones on and turn it to black and listen with my ears, close my eyes and concentrate. Yep. So I, I know... You know exactly. See, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, mean, I appreciate you supporting that. 
musicians need to do that. You know what I mean? And, and like you said, some of them don't, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a form of meditation and music has a meditation too. Yeah. It's a flow. And man, Vinny talks about it. Like uh, there's, there's people that are saying like, and uh, your brain can get in the way, man. It's just like, how do you find that, that Zen, that, that flow that just kind of happens for real. And it's, and uh, it's it's sometimes when you start thinking about what it, it that's when things get messed up. It's it's exactly correct, you know. So yeah, yeah and I'm here to help anytime, man. So yeah. you know, I've got like you know, you can you know check me out on you know drummermikehanson.com. You can yep. leave me a message on my on that. You know, if you want to check me out on you know my 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 handles on social media are symbol crasher, which is like symbol, like our symbol C Y M. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, Hurricane is, you know, um, Hurricane the Band is Facebook. Okay. And then Instagram is Hurricane Original. Original is O-R, O-R-G-N-L, original. You know, it's abbreviated. Uh-huh. So it's Hurricane Original. And, you know, feel free to, anybody wants to reach out to me, it's fine. I, I mean, I'm not like, you know, untouchable. You know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't try to become like, you know, I'm here, man. I'm here to help. You know, I'm here, whatever anybody needs, you know, I mean, I get to help too, man. People help me. Thanks to Jim Beyer for connecting us. Um, Thank you, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) He's been uh, the last year or so just such a a, a cheerleader for this podcast. And Zach, you know, he's so proactive. He's so proactive. He is. It's inspiring. And you know what? And, you know, I'm going to say this. There's not a lot of guys like him. You know, they go out there and they build snares and they do their thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jim's more than that, man. You know, he really mm-hmm. is. Well, it, it, it is inspiring because, you know, it's like I want to match his bravado. And I, exactly. I, I love it. And it's like, hey, guess what? If you're not – if you, and it's not like it's work. I mean, like he's into it. You develop relationships and it makes this industry unique and it makes it fun. It makes it worthwhile. You know, you're not schmoozing. This isn't, you're not trying to pass off bullshit. You're just creating relationships. And man, that's, that's what makes this, what we do, uh, pretty freaking cool over most industries. <laughs> oh yeah, it is. It's a great family we have, you know, the ones that do come together positively yep. and help each other. Um, you know, obviously there's different camps of people, but the camps that I belong to are, are very well-respected camps and and we help each other and and it's not competitive i i am not a competitive person you know at all and yeah. and you know there's no reason to be competitive it's a waste of know? energy man it's, it's a, a waste. waste of energy man everybody's got something to offer and and one of the last things i like to say before we leave is that you know music is a universal language of life and it's unfortunate that you know our world you know our united states today has you know obviously crippled that in whatever way it's happened, I don't really know the answer yet, mm-hmm. but we will know the answer soon. Yeah, and and they really, it's really damaging. And I hope people in the world realize how important music is now, because without music, it it, it expresses emotion. It helps us through things. It reminds us of things. It 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 um, it's everything, man. It music is so important, and I think that maybe with this change that's happening, maybe someday we all will do better financially and i know what people always say well i don't play for money i play for just my music well that's you know that's a bunch of crock man because 
you know what, man? We all got to make a living too. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, I mean, these songwriters wouldn't be writing songs and making all this money. You think yeah. they'd write a song, and put it out, and if they didn't get paid for it? No. So right. you can't say you just write. I mean, we already know that it's in our heart, and we do it for for that. But it's more than that. You've you've now it's in your heart. Now you want to give it to the people, but you want to also make a living with it. So I hope I hope it switches where the the world realizes that musicians are art that artists artists need to make to be they need to be graded higher than what we are i think we've been kind of stepped down a little too much well i think i think now is a time when people are realizing how much they're missing music how much they're missing new content and live music they realize what we're worth you know yeah more so and and, and hopefully that that will uh uh, good things will come of of that reckoning that that those realizations well mike i'm gonna let you go man it has been a joy to get to know you um i i i say this to so many people man i hope we get a chance to meet in person oh we will definitely it'll Uh, happen yeah and 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 that will be a sign that things are getting back to normal i know right? but um man best of luck to you and god bless you for taking care of family and business and just um you know, best of luck during this time. Awesome. But, well, I hope I gave enough information to help some people. You I, know, you did. You helped helped me for sure. So, but I I thank you so much uh, for this, and uh, and I'll be in touch, man. Okay, you too, man. Be be good to yourself too, and 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 stay tight with your family. And yeah. uh, you know what? We'll be in touch. All right, Mike. Have a good okay. night. Okay. All right, you too. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. So there you go, my conversation with Mike Hansen. Uh, thanks so much for Mike taking some time out of his caretaking responsibilities and other things going on during this weird time to speak to us and give us some insight on all of his experience. And it was nice to get to know him a little bit better. Stay tuned. Next week, we have something different. Uh, as a lot of you know, my co-host, Zach Albetta, is obsessed with cooking. He wanted to do an episode with another guest who is just as obsessed with cooking as he is. And when you know it, our good friend Marcus Finney is in the same boat. Zach realizes that everyone is cooking a little bit more these days. So within this episode, from what I understand, there's lots of tips and resources and hacks and recipes. And he tells me there's something in this conversation for everyone, novices and veterans alike. So be sure to tune in to that episode next week. Some updated news for our Patreon members, or if you're considering being a Patreon member of this podcast, we've got a great new lesson from our friend Stephen Taylor. Stephen was a recent guest on this episode, and he runs Stephen's Drum Shed, a very successful online drum school. So if you are a Patreon member, you've got a great new lesson coming your way very, very soon. Or if you're considering Patreon to support this podcast, Uh, We've got some more material coming your way. But for now, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay positive, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.